0: Section 4. Some objections considered, which may be made against the reasonableness of what has been said of God making Himself His last end. Objection 1. Some may object against what has been said as being inconsistent with God's absolute independence and immutability, particularly, as though God were inclined to a communication of His fullness, and emanations of His own glory, as being His own most glorious and complete state. It may be thought that this does not well consist with God. Being self existent from all eternity, absolutely perfect in himself, in the possession of infinite and independent good. And that, in general, to suppose that God Himself has end, in the creation of the world, seems to suppose that He aims at some interest or happiness of His own, not easily reconcilable with His being perfect and infinitely happy in Himself. If it could be supposed that God needed anything, or that the goodness of His creatures could extend to Him, or that they could be profitable to him. It might be fit, that God should make himself, and his own interest, his highest and last end in creating the world. But seeing that God is above all need, and all capacity of being made better or happier in any respect. To what purpose should God make himself his end, or seek to advance himself in any respect by any of his works? How absurd is it to suppose that God should do such great things, With a view to obtain what he is already most perfectly possessed of, and was so from all eternity. And therefore cannot now possibly, need, nor with any color of reason be supposed to seek. Answer 1. Many have wrong notions of God's happiness, as resulting from his absolute self sufficiency, independence, and immutability. Though it be true, that God's glory and happiness are in and of himself, are infinite and cannot be added to, and unchangeable, For the whole and every part of which he is perfectly independent of the creature. Yet it does not hence follow, nor is it true, that God has no real and proper delight, pleasure, or happiness, in any of his acts or communications relative to the creature, or effects he produces in them. Or in anything he sees in the creature's qualifications, dispositions, actions, and state. God may have a real and proper pleasure or happiness in seeing the happy state of the creature. Yet this may not be different from his delight in himself. Being a delight in his own infinite goodness. Or the exercise of that glorious propensity of his nature to diffuse and communicate himself and so gratifying this inclination of his own heart. This delight which God has in his creature's happiness, cannot properly be said to be what God receives from the creature. For it is only the effect of his own work and in communications to the creature. In making it, and admitting it to a participation of His fullness. As the sun receives no thing from the jewel that receives its light, and shines only, by a participation of its brightness. With respect also to the creature's holiness. God may have a proper delight and joy in imparting this to the creature, as gratifying hereby His inclination to communicate of His own excellent fullness. God may delight, with true and great pleasure, in beholding that beauty which is an image and communication of his own beauty, an expression and manifestation of his own loveliness. And this is so far from being an instance of his happiness not being in and from himself that it is an evidence that he is happy in himself, or delights and has pleasure in his own beauty. If he did not take pleasure in the expression of his own beauty, it would rather be an evidence that he does not delight in his own beauty that he hath not his happiness and enjoyment in his own beauty and perfection. So that if we suppose God has real pleasure and happiness in the holy love and praise of his saints, as the image and communication of his own holiness, it is not properly any pleasure distinct from the pleasure he has in himself. But it is truly an instance of it. And with respect to God's being glorified in those perfections wherein his glory consists, expressed in their corresponding effects, dash as his wisdom. In wise designs and well-contrived works, his power, in great effects, his justice, in acts of righteousness, his goodness, in communicating happiness, dash this does not argue that his pleasure is not in himself, and his own glory. But the contrary. It is the necessary consequence of his delighting in the glory of his nature, that he delights in the emanation and effulgence of it. Nor do these things argue any dependence in God on the creature for happiness. Though he has real pleasure in the creature's holiness and happiness, yet this is not properly any pleasure which he receives from the creature. For these things are what he gives the creature, they are wholly and entirely from him. His rejoicing therein is rather a rejoicing in his own acts, and his own glory expressed in those acts, than a joy derived from the creature. God's joy is dependent on nothing besides his own act, which he exerts with an absolute and independent power. And yet, In some sense, it can be truly said, that God has the more delight and pleasure for the holiness and happiness of his creatures. Because God should be less happy if he were less good or if he had not that perfection of nature which consists in a propensity of nature to diffuse his own fullness. And would be less happy, if it were possible for him to be hindered in the exercise of his goodness, and his other perfections, in their proper effects. But he has complete happiness because he has these perfections, and cannot be hindered in exercising and displaying them in their proper effects. And this surely is not, because he is dependent. But because he is independent on any other that should hinder him. From this view, it appears, that nothing which has been said is in the least inconsistent with those expressions in scripture, that signify, man cannot be profitable to God, etc., for these expressions plainly mean no more, Than that God is absolutely independent of us. That we have nothing of our own, no stock from whence we can give to God. And that no part of his happiness originates from man. From what has been said, it appears that the pleasure God hath in those things which have been mentioned is rather a pleasure in diffusing and communicating to, than in receiving from, the creature. Surely, it is no argument of indigence in God that he is inclined to communicate of his infinite fullness. It is no argument of the emptiness or deficiency of a fountain, that it is inclined to overflow. Nothing from the creature alters God's happiness, as though it were changeable either by increase or diminution. For though these communications of God, these exercises, operations, and expressions of His glorious perfections which God rejoices in, are in time, yet history in them is without beginning or change. They were always equally present in the divine mind. He beheld them with equal clearness, certainty, and fullness, in every respect, as he doth now. They were always equally present. As with him there is no variableness or succession. He ever beheld and enjoyed them perfectly in his own independent and immutable power and will. Answer two. If any are not satisfied with the preceding answer, but still insist on the objection, let them consider whether they can devise any other scheme of God's last end in creating the world. But what will be equally obnoxious to this objection in its full force, if there be any force in it? For if God had any last end in creating the world, then there was something in some respect future, that he aimed at, and designed to bring to pass by creating the world. Something that was agreeable to his inclination or will. Let that be his own glory, or the happiness of his creatures, or what it will. Now, if there be something that God seeks as agreeable, or grateful to him, then, in the accomplishment of it, he is gratified. If the last end which he seeks in the creation of the world be truly a thing grateful to him as certainly it is, if it be truly his end, and truly the object of his will, then it is what he takes a real delight and pleasure in. But then, according to the argument of the objection how can he have anything future to desire or seek, who is already perfectly, eternally, and immutably satisfied in himself? what can remain for him to take any delight in, or to be further gratified by, whose eternal and unchangeable delight is in himself, as his own complete object of enjoyment. Thus the objector will be pressed with his own objection, let him embrace what notion he will of God's end in the creation. And I think he has no way left to answer but that which has been taken above. It may therefore be proper here to observe, that let what will be God's last end, that he must have a real and proper pleasure in. Whatever be the proper object of his will, he is gratified in. And the thing is either grateful to him in itself, or for something else for which he wills it. And so is his further end. But whatever is God's last end that he wills for its own sake. As grateful to him in itself, or in which he has some degree of true and proper pleasure. Otherwise we must deny any such thing as will in God with respect to anything brought to pass in time, and so must deny His work of creation, or any work of His providence, to be truly voluntary. But we have as much reason to suppose, that God's works in creating and governing the world, are properly the fruits of His will, as of His understanding. And if there be any such thing at all, as what we mean by acts of will in God, Then he is not indifferent whether his will be fulfilled or not. And if he is not indifferent, then he is truly gratified and pleased in the fulfillment of his will. And if he has a real pleasure in attaining his end, then the attainment of it belongs to his happiness. That in which God's delight or pleasure in any measure consists. To suppose that God has pleasure in things that are brought to pass in time, only figuratively and metaphorically, is to suppose that he exercises will about these things and makes them his end only metaphorically. Answer 3. The doctrine that makes God's creatures and not himself to be his last end, is a doctrine the furthest from having a favorable aspect on God's absolute self-sufficiency and independence. It far less agrees therewith than the doctrine against which this is objected. For we must conceive of the efficient as depending on his ultimate end. He depends on this end, and his desires, aims, actions and pursuits. So that he fails in all his desires, actions, and pursuits, if he fails of his end. Now, if God himself be his last end, then in his dependence on his end, he depends on nothing but himself. If all things be of him, and to him, and he the first and the last, this shows him to be all in all. He is all to himself. He goes not out of himself in what he seeks. But his desires and pursuits as they originate from, so they terminate in himself. And he is dependent on none but himself in the beginning or end of any of his exercises or operations. But if not himself, but the creature, were his last end, then as he depends on his last end, he would be in some sort dependent on the creature. Objection to some may object, that to suppose God makes himself his highest and last end, is dishonorable to him. As it in effect supposes, that God does everything from a selfish spirit, selfishness is looked upon as mean and sordid in the creature. Unbecoming and even hateful in such a worm of the dust as man. We should look upon a man as of a base and contemptible character, who should in everything he did, be governed by selfish principles. Should make his private interest as governing aim in all his conduct in life. How far then should we be from attributing any such thing to the supreme being, the blessed and only potentate? does it not become us to ascribe to him the most noble and generous dispositions, and qualities the most remote from everything private, narrow, and sordid? Answer 1. Such an objection must arise from a very ignorant or inconsiderate notion of the vice of selfishness and the virtue of generosity. If by selfishness be meant, a disposition in any being to regard himself. This is no otherwise vicious or unbecoming, than as one is less than a multitude and so the public will is of greater value than his particular interest. Among created beings one single person is inconsiderable in comparison of the generality. And so his interest is of little importance compared with the interest of the whole system. Therefore in them, a disposition to prefer self, as if it were more than all, is exceeding vicious. But it is vicious on no other account, than as it is a disposition that does not agree with the nature of things and that which is indeed the greatest good. And a disposition in anyone to forego his own interest for the sake of others, is no further excellent, no further worthy the name of generosity, than it is treating things according to their true value. Prosecuting something most worthy to be prosecuted. An expression of a disposition to prefer something to self-interest, that is indeed preferable in itself. But if God be indeed so great, and so excellent, that all other beings are as nothing to him, and all other excellency be as nothing, and less than nothing and vanity, in comparison of his, and God be omniscient and infallible, and perfectly knows that he is infinitely the most valuable being, then it is fit that his heart should be agreeable to this, which is indeed the true nature and proportion of things, and agreeable to this infallible and all comprehending understanding which he has of them, and that perfectly clear light in which he views them and that he should value himself infinitely more than his creatures. Answer 2. In created beings, a regard to self-interest may properly be said in opposition to the public welfare. Because the private interest of one person may be inconsistent with the public good. At least it may be so in the apprehension of that person. That, which this person looks upon as his interest, may interfere with or oppose the general good hence his private interest may be regarded and pursued in opposition to the public. But this cannot be with respect to the supreme being, the author and head of the whole system, on whom all absolutely depend. Who is the fountain of being and good to the whole? It is more absurd to suppose that his interest should be opposite to the interest of the universal system, than that the welfare of the head, heart, and vitals of the natural body, should be opposite to the welfare of the body and it impossible that God, who is omniscient, should apprehend his interest, as being inconsistent with the good and interest of the whole. Answer 3. God seeking himself in the creation of the world in the manner which has been supposed, is so far from being inconsistent with the good of its creatures, that it is a kind of regard to himself that inclines him to seek the good of his creature. It is a regard to himself that disposes him to diffuse and communicate himself. It is such a delight in his own internal fullness and glory that disposes him to an abundant effusion and emanation of that glory. The same disposition that inclines him to delight in his glory causes him to delight in the exhibitions, expressions, and communications of it. If there were any person of such a taste and disposition of mind that the brightness and light of the sun seemed lovely to him, He would be willing that the sun's brightness and light should be retained within itself. But they that delight in it, to whom it appears lovely and glorious, will esteem it an amiable and glorious thing to have it diffused and communicated through the world. Here, by the way, it may be properly considered whether some writers are not chargeable with inconsistency in this respect. They speak against the doctrine of God making himself his own highest and last end, as though this were an ignoble selfishness when indeed he only is fit to be made the highest end, by himself and all other beings. Inasmuch as he is infinitely greater and more worthy than all others, yet with regard, to creatures, who are infinitely less worthy of supreme and ultimate regard, they suppose, that they necessarily, at all times, seek their own happiness, and make it their ultimate end in all, even their most virtuous actions. And that this principle, regulated by wisdom and prudence, as leading to that which is their true and highest happiness, is the foundation of all virtue, and everything that is morally good and excellent in them. Objection. 3 To what has been supposed, that God makes Himself His end, in seeking that His glory and excellent perfections should be known, esteemed, loved, and delighted in by His creatures, it may be objected, that this seems unworthy of God. It is considered as below a truly great man, to be much influenced in his conduct by a desire of popular applause. The notice and admiration of a gazing multitude, would be esteemed but a low end, to be aimed at by a prince or philosopher, in any great and noble enterprise. How much more is it unworthy the great God, to perform his magnificent works, e. g. The creation of the vast universe, out of regard to the notice and admiration of worms of the dust, that the displays of his magnificence may be gazed at, and applauded by those who are infinitely more beneath him, than the meanest rabble are beneath the greatest prince or philosopher. This objection is specious. It hath the show of argument. But it will appear to be nothing but a show, if we consider. 1. Whether it be not worthy of God, to regard and value what is excellent and valuable in itself. And so to take pleasure in its existence. It seems not liable to any doubt that there could be no future existence worthy to be desired or sought by God, and so worthy to be made his end, if no future existence was valuable and worthy to be brought to effect. If, when the world was not, there was any possible future thing fit and valuable in itself, I think the knowledge of God's glory, and the esteem and love of it, must be so. Understanding and will are the highest kind of created existence. And if they be valuable, it must be in their exercise. But the highest and most excellent kind of their exercise is in some actual knowledge, an exercise of will. And, certainly, the most excellent actual knowledge and will that can be in the creature, is the knowledge and the love of God. And the most true excellent knowledge of God, is the knowledge of His glory or moral excellence. And the most excellent exercise of the will consists in esteem and love, and a delight in His glory. If any created existence is in itself worthy to be, or anything that ever was future is worthy of existence, such a communication of divine fullness, such an emaciation and expression of the divine glory, is worthy of existence. But if nothing that ever was future was worthy to exist, then no future thing was worthy to be aimed at by God in creating the world. And if nothing was worthy to be aimed at in creation, then nothing was worthy to be God's end in creation. If God's own excellency and glory is worthy to be highly valued and delighted in by Him, then the value and esteem hereof by others is worthy to be regarded by Him, for this is a necessary consequence. To make this plain, let it be considered how it is with regard to the excellent qualities of another. If we highly value the virtues and excellencies of a friend, in proportion, we shall approve of others' esteem of them, and shall disapprove the contempt of them. If these virtues are truly valuable, they are worthy that we should thus approve others' esteem, and disapprove their contempt of them. And the case is the same with respect to any being's own qualities or attributes. If he highly esteems them, and greatly delights in them, he will naturally and necessarily love to see esteem of them in others, and dislike their disesteem. And if the attributes are worthy to be highly esteemed by the being who hath them, so is the esteem of them in others worthy to be proportionately approved and regarded. I desire it may he considered, whether it be unfit that God should be displeased with contempt of himself? If not, but on the contrary it be fit and suitable that he should be displeased with this, there is the same reason that he should be pleased with a proper love, esteem, and honor of himself. The matter may be also cleared, by considering what it would become us to approve of and value with respect to any public society we belong to, for example, our nation or country. It becomes us to love our country. And therefore it becomes us to value the just honor of our country. But the same that it becomes us to value and desire for a friend, and the same that it becomes us to desire and seek for the community, the same does it become God to value and seek for himself. That is, on supposition, that it becomes God to love himself as it does men to love a friend or the public. Which I think has been before proved. Here are two things that ought particularly to be adverted to. 1. That in God, the love of himself and the love of the public are not to be distinguished, as in man, because God's being, as it were, comprehends all. His existence, being infinite, must be equivalent to universal existence. And for the same reason that public affection in the creature is fit and beautiful, God's regard to himself must be so likewise. 2. In God, the love of what is fit and decent, cannot he a distinct thing from the love of himself. Because the love of God is that wherein all holiness primarily and chiefly consists, and God's own holiness must primarily consist in the love of himself. And if God's holiness consists in love to himself, then it will imply an approbation of the esteem and love of him and others. For a being that loves himself, necessarily loves love to himself. If holiness in God consists chiefly in love to himself, holiness in the creature must chiefly consist in love to him. And if God loves holiness in himself, he must love it in the creature. Virtue, by such of the late philosophers as seem to be in chief repute, is placed in public affection, or general benevolence. And if the essence of virtue lies primarily in this, then the love of virtue itself is virtuous no otherwise, than as it is implied in, or arises from, this public affection, or extensive benevolence of mind. Because if a man truly loves the public, he necessarily loves love to the public. Now therefore, for the same reason, if universal benevolence in the highest sense, be the same thing with benevolence to the divine being, who is in effect universal being, it will follow, that love to virtue itself is no otherwise virtuous, than as it is implied in, or arises from, love to the divine being. Consequently, God's own love to virtue is implied in love to Himself and is virtuous no otherwise than as it arises from love to Himself. So that God's virtuous disposition, appearing in love to holiness in the creature, is to be resolved into the same thing with love to Himself. And consequently, whereinsoever soever He makes virtue His end, He makes Himself His end. In fine, God being as it were an all-comprehending being, all His moral perfections, His holiness, justice, grace, and benevolence, are some way or other to be resolved into a supreme and infinite regard to himself. And if so, it will be easy to suppose that it becomes him to make himself his supreme and last end in his works. I would here observe, by the way, that if any insist that it becomes God to love and take delight in the virtue of his creatures for its own sake, in such a manner as not to love it from regard to himself, this will contradict a former objection against God taking pleasure in communications of himself. Namely, that inasmuch as God is perfectly independent and self-sufficient, therefore all his happiness and pleasure consists in the enjoyment of himself. So that if the same persons make both objections, they must be inconsistent with themselves. 2. I would observe, that it is not unworthy of God to take pleasure in that which is in itself fit and amiable. Even in those that are infinitely below him. If there be infinite grace and condescension in it, yet these are not unworthy of God, but infinitely to his honor and glory. They who insist that God's own glory was not an ultimate end of his creation of the world, but the happiness of his creatures do it under a color of exalting God's benevolence to his creatures. But if his love to them be so great, and he so highly values them as to look upon them worthy to be his end in all his great works, as they suppose. They are not consistent with themselves, in supposing that God has so little value for their love and esteem. For as the nature of love, especially great love, causes him that loves to value the esteem of the person beloved, so, that God should take pleasure in the creature's just love and esteem, will follow from God's love both to himself and to his creatures. If he esteem and love himself, he must approve of esteem and love to himself, and disapprove the contrary. And if he loves and values the creature, he must value and take delight in their mutual love and esteem. 3. As to what is alleged, that it is unworthy of great men to be governed in their conduct and achievements by a regard to the applause of the populace. I would observe, what makes their applause worthy of so little regard, is their ignorance, giddiness, and injustice. The applause of the multitude very frequently is not founded on any just view of things, but on humor. Mistake, folly, and unreasonable affections. Such applause deserves to be disregarded. But it is not beneath a man of great dignity and wisdom to value the wise and just esteem of others, however inferior to him. The contrary, instead of being an expression of greatness of mind, would show a hardy and mean spirit. It is such an esteem in his creatures that God regards. For, such an esteem only is fit and amiable in itself. Objection. For to suppose that God makes Himself His ultimate end in the creation of the world, derogates from the freeness of His goodness, and His beneficence to His creatures, and from their obligations to gratitude for the good communicated. For if God, in communicating His fullness, makes Himself, and not the creatures, His end, then what good He does, He does for Himself, and not for them, for His sake, and not theirs. Answer. God and the creature, in the emanation of the divine fullness, are not properly set in opposition. Were made the opposite parts of a disjunction. Nor ought God's glory and the creature's good, to be viewed as if they were properly and entirely distinct, in the objection. The supposeth, that God having respect to His glory, and the communication of good to His creatures, are things altogether different that God communicating His fullness for Himself, and His doing it for them, are things standing in a proper disjunction and opposition. Whereas, if we were capable of more perfect views of God and divine things, which are so much above us, it probably would appear very clear, that the matter is quite otherwise and that these things, instead of appearing entirely distinct, are implied one in the other. God is seeking His glory, seeks the good of His creatures. Because the emanation of His glory which He seeks and delights in, as he delights in himself and his own eternal glory implies the communicated excellency and happiness of his creatures. And in communicating his fullness for them, he does it for himself. Because their good, which he seeks, is so much in union and communion with himself. God is their good. Their excellency and happiness is nothing but the emanation and expression of God's glory. God, in seeking their glory and happiness, seeks himself, and in seeking himself, 1e. Himself diffused and expressed, which he delights in, as he delights in his own beauty and fullness, he seeks their glory and happiness. This will better appear, if we consider the degree and manner in which he aimed at the creature's excellency and happiness in creating the world. Namely, during the whole of its designed eternal duration. In greater and greater nearness, and strictness of union with himself, and his own glory and happiness, in constant progression, through all eternity. As the creature's good was viewed, when God made the world, with respect to its whole duration, an eternally progressive union to, and communion with him so the creature must be viewed as an infinitely strict union of himself. In this view it appears, that God's respect to the creature, in the whole, unites with his respect to himself. Both regards are like two lines, which at the beginning appear separate, but finally meet in one, both being directed to the same center and as to the good of the creature itself, in its whole duration and infinite progression, it must be viewed as infinite. And as coming nearer and nearer to the same thing in its infinite fullness. The nearer anything comes to infinite, the nearer it comes to identity with God. And if any good, as viewed by God, is beheld as infinite, it cannot be viewed as a distinct thing from God's own infinite glory. The Apostles' Discourse of the Great Love of Christ to Men, Ephesians 5:25, etc., leads us thus to think of the love of Christ to His church. As considering with His love to Himself, by virtue of the strict union of the church with Him. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ also loved the church, and gave Himself for it, that He might present it to Himself a glorious church. So ought men to love their wives, as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, even as the Lord loved the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Now I apprehend that there is nothing in God's disposition to communicate of his own fullness to the creatures, that it all derogates from the excellence of it, or the creature's obligation. God's disposition to cause his own infinite fullness to flow forth is not the less properly called his goodness, because the good he communicates is what he delights in, as he delights in his own glory. The creature has no less benefit by it. Neither has such disposition less of a direct tendency to the creature's benefit. Nor is this disposition in God, to diffuse His own good, the less excellent, because it is implied in His love to Himself. For His love to Himself does not imply it any otherwise, but is as it implies a love to whatever is worthy and excellent. The emanation of God's glory is in itself worthy and excellent, and so God delights in it and this delight is implied in his love to his own fullness. Because that is the fountain, the sum and comprehension of everything that is excellent. Nor does God's inclination to communicate good from regard to himself, or delight in his own glory, at all diminish the freeness in his beneficence. This will appear, if he consider particularly, in what ways doing good to others from self-love, may be consistent with the freeness of beneficence and I conceive there are only these two ways. 1. When any does good to another from confined self-love, which is opposite to a general benevolence. This kind of self-love is properly called selfishness. In some sense, the most benevolent, generous person in the world, seeks his own happiness in doing good to others. Because he places his happiness in their good. His mind is so enlarged as to take them, as it were, into himself thus when they are happy he feels it he partakes with them and is happy in their happiness this is as far from being inconsistent with the freeness of benevolence that on the contrary free benevolence and kindness consists in it the most free beneficence that can be in men is doing good not from a confined selfishness but from a disposition of free benevolence or love to begin in general but now with respect to divine being there is no such thing as confined selfishness in him, or a love to himself opposite to general benevolence. It is impossible, because he comprehends all entity, and all excellence, and his own essence. The eternal and infinite being, is in effect, being in general. And comprehends universal existence. God, and his benevolence to his creatures, cannot have his heart enlarged, in such a manner as to take in beings who are originally out of himself. Distinct and independent. This cannot be in an infinite being, who exists alone from eternity. But he, from his goodness, as it were enlarges himself in a more excellent and divine manner. This is by communicating and diffusing himself. And so, instead of finding, he makes objects of his benevolence, not by taking what he finds distinct from himself, and so partaking of their good, and being happy in them, but by flowing forth and expressing himself in them, and making them partake of him, and then rejoicing in himself expressed in them, and communicated in them. 2. Another thing, in doing good to others from self-love that derogates from the freeness of the goodness, is acting from dependence of them for the good we need or desire. So that, in our beneficence, we are not self-moved, but as it were constrained by something without ourselves. But it has been particularly shown already that God making himself his end, argues no dependence, but is consistent with absolute independence and self-sufficiency. And I would here observe, that there is something in that disposition to communicate goodness, that shows God to be independent and self-moved in it, in a manner that is peculiar, and above the beneficence of the creatures. Creatures, even the most excellent, are not independent and self-moved in their goodness but in all its exercises they are excited by some object they find. Something appearing good, or in some respect worthy of regard, presents itself, and moves their kindness. But God, being all, and alone is absolutely self-moved. The exercises of his communicative disposition are absolutely from within himself. All that is good and worthy in the object, and its very being, proceeding from the overflowing of this fullness. These things show that the supposition of God making Himself His ultimate end, does not all diminish the creature's obligation to gratitude for communications of good received. For if it lessen its obligation, it must be on one of the following accounts. Either, that the creature has not so much benefit by it. Or, that the disposition it flows from, is not proper goodness, not having so direct a tendency to the creature's benefit or, that the disposition is not so virtuous and excellent in its kind, or, that the beneficence is not so free. But it has been observed, that none of these things take place, with regard to that disposition, which has been supposed to have excited God to create the world. I confess there is a degree of indistinctness and obscurity in the close consideration of such subjects, and a great imperfection in the expressions we use concerning them arising unavoidably from the infinite sublimity of the subject, and the incomprehensibleness of those things that are divine. Hence revelation is the surest guide in these matters and what that teaches shall in the next place be considered. Nevertheless, the endeavors used to discover what the voice of reason is, so far as it can go, may serve to prepare the way, by obviating cavils insisted on by many. And to satisfy us, that what the Word of God says of the matter is not unreasonable.
1: Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com. It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books,